Please turn with me to Titus chapter 3. A few years ago, I needed a new goal in life, so I decided that I wanted to learn how to speak modern Hebrew. I'm sure it's a goal that many of you have tied into before, right? Well, I, you know, at seminary, they teach you to read the ancient text, but they don't teach you how to speak. And I thought, how wonderful if I could converse in modern Hebrew. So I got online, I found a set of CDs. There's actually five sets, but I just ordered the first set because the first set was free, right? So I got the first set a modern CD, uh, Hebrew lessons, and man, I just dove into it, and I learned how to find a restaurant, and how to order a kosher hot dog, and I'm really rolling, you know, I'm having a lot of fun, but as time went on, my, my enthusiasm waned, because there's not a lot of folks around town that I can practice my modern Hebrew with, and so I set that goal aside, uh, and then about a month later, I got a bill for all five sets of modern Hebrew lessons. And it was, I mean, it was really expensive. It was several hundred dollars. And I'm like, oh gosh, this is crazy. So I got online and I called the salesperson and I said, uh, I don't want all five sets. I just ordered the first set, the free set. That's the only set I want, just that free one. And she said, well, that first set is free, but only for 30 days. It's just free for 30 days. And then after 30 days, you have to buy all five sets. That's the contract that you signed. That was in the fine print. I said, well, that doesn't really sound free to me. Right? I, just, I just want the, the first set, the free set. So, well, it was free for 30 days, but now it's not free. Now you've got to pay for it, the whole thing. I said, but I don't want the whole thing. I just want the free set. So, well, you can't just have just the free set. You've got to buy all of them. I said, well, I don't want those. So, okay, well, I'll make you a deal. You can uh, just pay us for that first set, or you can just send the first set back if you're not using it any longer. Now, here's where the problem came in. CDs. Who, who actually uses CDs any longer? No, CDs are, are ancient, right? So I got the CDs and I downloaded the MP3 files from the CD, CDs onto my phone. And I threw the CDs away. And then when the space began to be used up on my phone, I deleted the MP3 files, right? So I had nothing, right? I had nothing. And I ended up having to pay for that first set, which was not cheap, but I possessed nothing in the end. And I don't even remember how to order a kosher hot dog. I don't remember anything, right? <laughs> nothing. I ended up with nothing out of this bargain. And I, I think sometimes that's how we view salvation. Right? God says it's free, but in the end, you're really going to have to pay for it, right? And if you can't pay enough, you might end up with nothing. I know many of you know the doctrine of eternal security, the fact that once you possess salvation, you can never leave it. You belong to God forever. You know the, the fact of that. You know it in your head, but I run into so many Christians that it hasn't really sunk down deep into their hearts. They, they believe it intellectually, but they still wonder and they still have doubts. Is it really free? That just sounds too good to be true. Can I really trust that God has given me eternal life and he won't take it back or that I can't, in a sense, even give it back? That I can't lose it? And so it's in their minds, but it's not really deep in their hearts. And because it hasn't sunk into the heart, there is this kind of sense of, of insecurity and doubt and fear that's always running in the background, which completely robs us of joy, makes us live with a sense of, of fear. And fear is a terrible motivation to live with in life. And some of you probably know the doctrine of eternal security. Maybe it's even sunk in your heart, hearts, but you don't really know how to give it away. It's this wonderful gift that God has given to you and you possess it, but you don't, you don't know it to the extent that you could, could share it and give it 
with another person. And so this morning, uh, what I want to do is I want to I think about that question. Can I really know for sure? Because I promise you, I've seen over and over and over again, when it comes from somebody's head and it finally embeds itself deep in their heart, it is, it is one of the most transforming truths of the Word of God. It's a phenomenal sense of freedom and power and trust and confidence and joy in God. So we want to look at this question this morning. Uh, how can I know for sure? And I'm going to give you three reasons. How can I know for sure? First, because God saved me. Second, because I am new. And third, because God is faithful. So let's look at all three of these. First, because God saved me. Or if I can state it differently, I didn't save myself. My salvation is, in fact, the work of God. Okay, I want you to read with me in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Paul's writing to his disciple Titus, and he says this. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us because God wanted to save us. God was the one who initiated our salvation. God is the one who pursued us. A few weeks ago, I had a Sunday off. I wasn't at Southwood or Creekside preaching, so I dropped in here at Anderson. I sat in the back and I listened to Zach talk about sin. It was a great sermon, and he used this illustration. And I will tell you, I've used this illustration many times when sharing the gospel. I've drawn this out on a napkin when trying to explain the gospel. The idea that God's on one side of the chasm and we're on the other, and sin is that, that separation, that barrier. And God is the one who bridges the separation between himself and man. And in my mind, I think always I conceived of it, uh, as Zach said, as, as we're standing on one side as humanity and we're looking across and we're longing to be with God. But Zach just pointed something out that I really hadn't thought about much before in this context, which is that's not true. What, what's actually happening is we're on the other side running away from God. That's the nature of humanity. We're running away from God or we're standing at the edge and we're throwing stones at God because we're enemies of God. We're hateful of God. And what God does is he bridges that gulf, he comes across and he chases us down. That's what grace really means. Grace means God takes the initiative. God chases us down. God is the one who initiates our salvation. God is the one who accomplishes our salvation through his strength and his power. Read with me again chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, that is, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who's doing the action in Titus 3, verses 5 through 7? And it is God, it is God, it is God, it is God the Father. Sending the Son, paying the price for our sins, raising him from the dead so that he can send the Spirit to regenerate us. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God doing the work. So what's our part? We have to do something, right? Yeah, Blake talked about this last week, right? We have to to believe, Which which is not a work. It's the reception of a gift. We just reach out and say yes, but, but our faith Our receiving is not what saved us, right? You are not saved by faith. 
You're saved by grace through faith. You are saved by God. God is the one who accomplishes your salvation, not your faith, not the strength of your faith, not the power of your faith, not the consistency of your faith, but God. God saves you by grace through faith. Now, the first time I asked Tristy out on a date, she said no. Second time, I didn't give up. Second time I asked her out on a date, she said, let me think about it, <laughs> right? Obviously, I won, right? I, I pursued, I chased, I broke her will, and so here we are today, right? That, that's, that's true. She had to at some point say yes, but we're here because I didn't quit, right? I just kept coming after her. So it is with God. Do we have to say yes? Well, yeah, absolutely, we have to say yes. But we're here because God chased us down. Hey, the analogy that I always use when I'm trying to present this idea is the analogy of a chair. All right? I've got a good friend, Tim Sewell. Tim and I have known each other for many years. We've worked to, uh, together for uh, over 12 years. Generally speaking, I trust him, you know, depending on the topic. Yeah, Tim, he's, you know, he gives me pretty reliable information. Tim says, hey, Brian, this chair can hold you up. Trust me, it can. And say, well, Tim, you know, you, you haven't steered me wrong too many times, so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put myself in the chair. And I do. I believe the messenger. And I believe what he's saying about this object is true, and the object is reliable. And so I, I entrust myself to this chair, so to speak, and I put all of my weight upon it, and here I am. And what's holding me off the ground? It's not my confidence in Tim, and it's not even my confidence in the chair. What's holding me off the ground is the chair, Right, the chair, the object of my faith. And if I put my faith in a worthy object, then I will be held off of the ground. This is God. This is God. God is a worthy object of our faith. He can save us and he can save us forever. And we might put our trust in him. And as we do so, we're hesitant, we're nervous. We still have our doubts and we get up here and we still remain a bit nervous. But what's holding us off the ground is not our confidence, not our faith, not our trust, but God, God who's reliable. God is the one who's reliable. And so God saves us because he wanted to. And he saved us through, through his initiative and he saved us through his power, even though we did not deserve it. Look with me in Titus chapter 3 again, verse 3. Paul writes, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Paul says in the previous verse, uh, Be gentle to one another. Show all consideration to all men. Why? Because you're all the same. You're all the same. You all also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to lusts and pleasures, spending your life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We are saved by God, not because we deserve it, but because God is loving and God is good. What do we deserve from God? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Paul says, this is our nature. It's a nature that we share with all the rest of mankind, and that is that we are children of wrath. That is, our our fundamental identity is that what we deserve from God is his wrath because we're sinful. Is God loving? Absolutely, God is also holy. And so he looks down at every single member of humanity, 
And he loves them deeply, but he also is deeply angered toward their sin. And he sees them in their sin, and the sin must be punished. But because he loves so deeply, he interposes Jesus Christ, who steps in front of the wrath of God, in a sense, and and takes the brunt of the wrath of God in himself that was deserved by us. That's what we deserve. So Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice he says it is through faith. It's not faith that saves you, but it's the grace of God. Grace means undeserved favor from God. And Paul calls that a gift. Uh, Literally, it is the word dorea. The name Theodore comes from that, or Dorothy. It means in Greek, literally, a free gift. No stipulations, no strings attached. Paul loves this word. Romans chapter 3, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It's a dorea. It is an absolutely and utterly, completely free gift. Your responsibility is to reach out and say, thank you. Thank you. It's the work of God on your behalf. Completely and utterly free gift. So one of the verses I love to use when I do share the gospel is Romans 4 verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes. His faith is credited as righteousness. Just a gift. See, sometimes I think we view our salvation kind of like an insurance policy, right? You you have to have it. You got to have it. You can't get there on your own, but you really only get to keep it in play if you pay the premiums, right? And if you don't pay the premiums, the policy lapses and you're in trouble, And then actually, once you go to make a claim on that policy, all of a sudden you realize, gosh, I didn't read the fine print and my deductible is $10,000 and I discover that actually there are certain things that are not actually covered by my insurance policy, right? All the things I would naturally do. None of those things are covered. It's just a, a set of other things that weird people would do that get, actually get covered by the policy. So I'm not really covered that well, even if I have paid the premiums, right? That's kind of how we look at salvation at times. Well, maybe God has covered some of my sins, but there probably are some really big ones. And I wonder, did God actually know about those when he said, here, you can, you can be part of my family? Or is he shocked? Or does he begin to look a little deeper and find more? And he's a bit repulsed. And we wonder, did Jesus actually cover all of that? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Apostle Peter wrote, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus, the just, deserving no punishment, took the punishment of the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God. And how many of those sins did he carry? He carried absolutely and utterly all of them. Apostle Paul will give a beautiful analogy. In Colossians chapter 2, he'll say there's a certificate of debt. It consisted of decrees against us. All of our sins listed. None of them left out. And Jesus Christ took that certificate of of debt, the decrees against us, and it was nailed through him into the cross. All of our sins. The word picture was very, very well known in Paul's audience. Because a criminal would receive a certificate of debt. On that certificate of debt would be listed the crimes and they would take that certificate with them into prison. This is the debt that's owed and when the debt was paid, across that piece of paper would be written paid in full. They needed to keep it with them because as they moved around out in the community, someone might see them and say, hey, I know that one. Thief. 
murderer, embezzler, liar, adulterer. It's a criminal. And the person would pull out that certificate of debt and it would say, paid in full. No, paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left this horrible stain. When Jesus washed it white as snow, no blemish. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of the Hebrews will make uh, many comparisons in which he's trying to show the the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Uh, Better than the priesthood, uh, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the sacrificial system because the sacrifice that Jesus offered is a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, read with me in verse 10. The author wrote, By this will, that is the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And in the book of Hebrews, he is using Old Testament terminology. So he doesn't use the word justification, he uses sanctification. That is, set, af- set apart and declared holy unto God. Okay? And we have been set apart, declared holy unto God by the body of Jesus Christ, which he made as an offering, Ephapox, uh, which means once and for all. Okay? One offering, all sins, all time. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Here's the comparison. The priest would go day after day, month after month, year after year, and people would come in, they'd say, I've sinned, here's my offering. They would slaughter the animal, they'd spread the blood, and they would just have to do it over and over and over again. Because as he says, the blood of bulls and goats can't actually take away the sins of humans because they're bulls and goats. And so those sacrifices just created this reminder that you are a sinful person and you need blood. And the blood of that sacrifice is not enough. Verse 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering, all sins, all time, fully, finally, completely paid for. You know, I'm just guessing, but probably in the next day or two or the next week or two, some of you may sin. (laughs) Some of you may be sinning right now. I don't know what's going on in your mind, right? Jesus is not surprised. Before time began, he knew you and he knew your life and he knew every sin that you would commit. And when his son was placed upon the cross, His son paid for that. Your debt is paid in full. The first time I got to really dive into this doctrine and teach the doctrine of eternal security, I was teaching at a Bible college in Central Asia. And we had... um, we had pastors, and we had church planners, and we had evangelists. Uh, many of them were first-generation believers there in Central Asia. And I was uh, tasked with, I had about uh, two weeks, week and a half, to cover a survey of doctrine. So we had about six, six seven hours a day. We're going to do a whole survey of doctrine. I had set aside uh, just about 30 minutes for the doctrine of eternal security. started on eternal security in the morning. And as I began to teach it, I discovered that uh, every one of my students had uh, spiritually been raised up 
in a tradition where they believed that they could lose their salvation. Every single student. Right again, most of these are first generation believers, and none of them, I'm stepping in a situation, and none of them agreed with the doctrine of eternal security. But to their credit, they really engaged with the text, right? They, they said, let me not bring my theological assumptions to this, and I begin to go through the text, and they begin to warm to the idea, and they begin to ask great questions. And we couldn't finish the topic in 30 minutes, so we kept going. Three hours, right? So for three hours, we're covering the doctrine of eternal security. And then we had to take a break for lunch. And we came back after lunch and said, we need to talk about this more. And so we went another three hours and we didn't finish. And so the next morning we spent another three hours on eternal security, about nine hours on eternal security. So what I'm saying to you is buckle up. (laughs) Nine hours. By the end of which every single one of them believed. But after the first three hours, we had to take a break. We went to lunch I was sitting in the cafeteria, and uh, there was a, a doctor there who was doing some relief work. Uh, his name was Martin Bassett, and he asked me what I was teaching that morning. I said, well, eternal security, you know, the doctrine that once you possess eternal life, God's given it to you as a free gift, you can't lose it. And he said to me, well, you know, not everybody agrees with you. I said, yeah, I know, I know. Said, but I don't know how you can not agree with this, right? So I, by this point in time, I'm on a roll, right? I'm three hours into it. I'm going, and he says, well, I don't agree with you. How can you not agree this is an absolutely free gift? That's why I don't agree with that. I think you can give it back. I said, well, imagine, I said, let me give you an analogy. So all I had in my pocket at the time is I had the pockets to the, or I had my, my keys to the apartment that I was staying in. I said, well, imagine that I give this to you as a free gift, Dr. Bassett. You don't, you don't deserve it. You don't earn it. It's just a gift, and I just give it to you, and you receive it. It's yours forever. And he said, well, what if I don't want it anymore, and I hand it back? And I said, you can't. He said, but what if I want to hand it back? I said, well, but you can't hand it back. He said, but I am handing it back. I said, but you, you can't. You can't actually. He said, but I am. I go, okay. Man, I was, you know, I was frustrated. So you know, I finished another three hours with the students, and then I went home that evening, and I couldn't sleep. Because when, when I'm really turned on something, I don't sleep well, so I write. So I wrote, and I wrote him a letter. And here's the analogy that I came up with for Dr. Bassett. I said, imagine this. I said, imagine that we're in Central Asia. And I have a heart attack, and I need a heart transplant. That is all that will save me. And you are the only doctor in Central Asia who has the skill to perform a heart transplant on me. It just so happens that a donor heart is available. It's a perfect match for me. And you're willing, and I need it. And I say, Dr. Bassett, will you give me that heart? And you say, yes. So I lay down on the table, and you open me up. You take out my old heart. You remove it. And you put in the new heart, and I have life. I'm so grateful. Only you could give me life. And you've given me life. You've given me a new heart. So now imagine, Dr. Bass, if in a year I come back to you and say, you know what, I don't want this new heart any longer. Take it back. Take it back. You'd say to me, well, uh, there's a problem. That, that old heart, it's gone. I, I destroyed it. It's dead. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to open you up and take it out again. That, that would kill you. I'm not going to do it. I said, well, I don't want it any longer. I want to give it back. Why don't I just do the heart surgery on myself? Well, I can't. I, I, don't, I don't have the skill, right? So Dr. Bassett, the problem is this. You're viewing salvation as, a, as an item or as a commodity in a sense that's handed back and forth, but that's not what it is. It's something that once you receive it, it changes who you are. Because his argument had been this, well, I'm free, and if I'm free, 
I can hand it back. I said, well, that's not what freedom means. Freedom doesn't mean that you can do anything. Freedom only means that you can make choices within your nature. And when your nature has been changed by God, your set of choices changes as well. And when you receive eternal life, you are changed. You can't make all the same set of choices. And one set of choices that's not available to you includes this idea of giving salvation back. So this is our second reason. How can I know for sure? Because I'm new. When I'm saved, I become a different person. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You are new. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, you are new. Now, is every attitude in you and every behavior in you, has, has, has all that changed? No. Remember last week, Blake talked about salvation. There are things that happen instantaneously at salvation, and then there are things that happen progressively. Instantaneously, you are transformed into a new creature. That's what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Then progressively, you're sanctified. You become more and more like Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, you are glorified and all flesh is removed. Paul talks about that mental process in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man, that is the physical body, is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day because the moment I trust Christ, God's spirit dwells inside of me, right? And now I can listen to the spirit of God. I still have the flesh who's talking to me, but the spirit is as well. And as I listen to the spirit of God, I am changed. I am transformed. I'm going to talk about that in two weeks. And I might be doing well or I might be doing poorly. It's a, it's a rough process at times. But inevitably, it leads to glorification because God has changed me. Now, if we move back to that moment, instantaneously, the moment I believed, there are transformations that take place in me. These are just a few. Okay? These are just a few. I experienced redemption. Jesus paid the purchase price for my sin that had enslaved me, and he bought me out of the slave market of sin, so to speak, and brought me into the freedom of relationship with him. I'm redeemed. I'm justified. That is, I'm now declared to be in right relationship with God. I was out of relationship with God, and now God says, you're in right relationship with me. You are declared righteous or justified. I'm reconciled. I was an alien, a stranger, an enemy of God. I'm standing on one side of the cliff throwing rocks at God or running away from God, and then God reconciles me. He puts me back into right relationship. I'm regenerated. I'm born dead, and God makes me alive because my spirit is separate from God. That is death, and now the spirit of God comes and indwells me, and so my spirit is united to the spirit of God. I'm regenerated, or I'm born again. I'm transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. I now have a new citizenship. I'm adopted. I was not a part of the family of God. Now I'm adopted into the family of God. I'm a permanent member. I'm united with Christ. Previously, God looked at me and I was alienated and a stranger. Now God looks at me and he sees me only in his son, Jesus Christ. Now all of these things, and this is not an, an exhaustive list, all of these things are things that God does to me and for me. None of these things do I have the capacity to undo, right? I can't unredeem myself or unjustify myself or unreconcile myself or unregenerate myself or untransfer myself or unadopt myself or disunite myself with Jesus Christ because I didn't do any of these things for myself. I can't undo these things to myself. 
So again, I said, Dr. Bassett, it's not just an item. It's not a commodity. It's not something that's handed back and forth. It is a change in your fundamental identity that God accomplishes on your behalf. You are new. I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. I, I, I love uh, the Pauline epistles. I love these moments when Paul's writing that he gets so excited that he just, he just goes and he goes and he goes. And sometimes it doesn't show up in English, but Paul has sentences that can last for a whole page or two, right? He just, he's so excited and he's so thrilled as he's finishing this section on the righteousness of God and the gift that we have in Jesus Christ that he wraps it up like this. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We suffer. And yet in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul launches into this list. I'm convinced neither death nor life, and he goes on and on. He, he, he runs out of things to say, and so he says, what? Actually, any other created thing. Let me just sum it all up, right? What, what, what is included in the realm of that which is created? Everything except God. Right? Only God is uncreated. And he says, nothing in the created realm can separate you. That means Satan can't separate you. That means you can't separate you. No sin, no choice, no failure. Neither angels nor demons nor yourself can separate you. You belong to God in Christ. You can't hand it back. And you know what? God wouldn't take it back, even if you could. That's our third reason. We're secure because God is faithful. Not because we're faithful, because we're not. We're secure because God is faithful. I want you to turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 10, verse 27. We're going to read these beautiful verses in John chapter 10. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, this, is, this is a beautiful verse. Jesus is saying this. You're in, you're in his hand. And his grip is strong. And if that were not enough, he said, my father, he wraps his hand around my hand. And you cannot escape. You belong to Father, Son, and Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed into the day of redemption. The Son has you in his hand. The Father wraps his hand around you. And then the Spirit just ties it all up tight. You're going nowhere. I was a little kid. I remember I used to play that game with my grandfather where he'd put a quarter in the palm of his hand. He said, if you can... Take it out of my hand, you can have it. <laughs> I would wear him out playing that game. I never got the quarter, right? I'd grab, as soon as I grabbed, he would just snatch it up. 
Somebody, I think I got, no, I don't have it. it. Where is it? It's right there. It's always right there. I could never get it out of his hand. And when I finally tired of that, he said, well, I'll make you another deal. Look, if you can pry my fingers back, you can have the quarter. My grandfather had, had these big, like, sausage-like fingers. Right? I mean, just huge, thick hands. There was no possible way ever that I could pry anything out of his hands. Once, his, once he grabbed a hold of you, you knew you weren't going anywhere unless he released you. And I always think about that image because that, that's, that's what our salvation is like. That's what we are like in the, the hand of God. We belong to God, safe and secure. Because God's good, because God's powerful, God's faithful. Back in my, my analogy, well, what if I don't want that heart any longer and I choose to give it back? Well, I can't, right? I can't perform the surgery on myself and the old dead heart is gone. It doesn't exist any longer. But can I convince the surgeon to do so? No, I cannot. I can't because the surgeon has taken an oath. It's called a Hippocratic Oath. He says, I will do no harm. I won't do it to you. You can't hand it back and I wouldn't do the surgery on you even if I could. I would not. It's not who I am. We're safe and we're secure because our salvation has transformed us. It's a gift of God. It's changed us and we're in the hands of a Heavenly Father who is good and strong. You know, we say to ourselves, we say, well, still, it just, it just seems too good to be true. Right? Nothing's free in this, in this life. Okay, except the one thing that's most valuable. And it's hard for us to reckon because we, just, we don't love the way that God loves, but this is how God loves. He loves his enemies. He loves those who are hateful to him. He saves those who are running away from him because that's who he is. Okay, that's who he is. So how do we apply this? When I was, uh, I think it was my junior, senior year in college, a movie came out. Um, it's pretty funny. It was pretty clean. So all our Christian friends, we just watched this movie over and over and over again. It's called Princess Bride. Right? Anybody ever heard of Princess Bride? Right. Very uh, quotable movie. We learned all the lines to it. Uh, if you don't know it, let me, I'll just give you like a 30-second summary. There's a farm boy. His name is Wesley. He's really poor. He has nothing. But he's working on a farm where there's a beautiful girl. And she really kind of ignores him because he's just a farm boy. Treats him like a slave. But he's so kind and he's so handsome that he kind of breaks her down. Eventually, she falls in love with him. And they agree they're going to get married. But Wesley, he, he has nothing. He's so poor that he needs to go out in the world and earn his fortune so he can come back and be worthy of this girl. So he leaves the farm but he is uh, captured by the dread pirate Roberts, who takes no prisoners, right? Everybody knows that. And she says, well, then he's dead. She's dead. So she's in mourning. She goes on with her life, assuming that he's, he's dead. But he's not dead, because the dread pirate Roberts made Wesley his cabin boy. And every night, he would say to Wesley, his cabin boy, this. He would say, good night, Wesley. Good work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning, right? So that's what Wesley heard every day. That's a terrible way to live. But I think for some of us, that's how we live in our relationship with God. I love you. You're doing good work. Keep it up. Don't know about eternity. We'll see. It's a terrible way to live. It's an insecure way to live. The motivation is always fear. That's not an atmosphere for growth. God gives us this rich soil in which to grow, which is eternal, everlasting security and assurance of our relationship with him. And I hope that as you, you listen to this and you think about this, it's sinking deeply down into your heart because it's a wonderful gift. As it sinks down, I want to challenge you to do one thing. If you have such a wonderful gift in you, gifts are made to share, 
So you have one application this week. Share this truth with one other person. And I, I know you're all saying, yeah, this, it's really neat that Brian gives us an application each week, and this is where I kind of tune out, and I, I, don't, I just kind of do whatever I want to do. So I'm looking at you, right? Here I am. I'm saying, share this with one person this week. Okay? One other person. Now, in order to do that, you're going to have to really understand it for yourself. And it is my belief that if you can't give a way of truth, you don't really know it, right? If you just hear me talk about it, you say, yeah, yeah, that's what I believe. That's true. But you don't know how to, to get up, walk out of here, and share that with somebody else, and you don't really, really know it. You need to know it to the level that you're sitting at lunch, and you're with another believer, and they say, you know, I just, I just don't know. Have I done enough? And you present the gospel of grace. Says, yeah, that's what I believe. I agree with that. And then you say, you know, once you have that, you can never lose it. Really, what if I choose to hand it back? Man, then you just give them a sermon, right? And you just say, I got nine hours worth of material. Here we go. And so I want to challenge you this week. Share this with one other person. I recall very vividly the first time I, I preached this doctrine uh, in college class when I was doing college ministry. And there was a young man who was sitting on the, the front row. And he'd been raised in a tradition where he was told week after week after week he needed to doubt whether or not he had eternal life. Because he might have lost it during that week. Or he might do things in the future in which he could lose it. And so he always lived with this element of fear. And as I was preaching it, I, I literally began to see the Spirit work in his heart. And by the end of the, the message, he was sitting there, he was just weeping. I mean, literally, he was just sitting on the front row, weeping. We talked afterwards, he said, you know, this changes absolutely everything. This changes everything. God loves me like that. And you know what it did? It changed the direction of his life. He is an evangelist and he is a disciple maker because he knows he's safe and secure. He wants to give this gift away. So I want to challenge you. Give it away to one person this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we are safe and secure. Not because of who we are, but because of your really ridiculous faithfulness to us. I thank you that you don't love like we love. You don't love conditionally. You love unconditionally. And you create security for us. So we can live in joy and peace and confidence. I pray, Father, we walk out of here with a a greater sense of confidence and a deep desire to share what we know. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so I look forward to hearing some great stories in the next couple weeks. God bless you.